pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when there is increasing evidence that people are getting serious about crime. It's something that Heather McDonald has been talking about for a long time. She's the author of the best-selling books, The War on Cops and The Diversity Delusion, which is not principally about crime. It's about the crime of basically pervading a uh, perverting a quest for justice into a quest for special privilege. But that's a different story. Uh, this story, The War on Cops and her editorial in uh, op-ed, in the Wall Street Journal, under the heading, Eric Adams Seems Serious About Crime, is Biden. And that was commenting on the uh, big and uh, meaningful and uh, dramatic get-together of the mayor of New York, newly elected with high hopes, and the president of the United States. Uh, were you, on balance, encouraged by the result of that summit conference, uh, Heather, uh, Heather McDonald is the uh, contributing editor for City Journal and the uh, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Heather, were you Always for having me on. It's always such an honor. Uh, let me just say, I guess I don't know you enough to be able to tell when you're being ironic and when you're being uh, literal when you call the meeting big and historic. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I, I don't ironic. share your view of that. I think that Biden came in uh, without much willingness to budge from the central democratic narrative about crime, which is completely inadequate, uh, which is that it's simply a problem of inadequate gun control. Uh, and and he showed no willingness to take on the problem that it really represents, which is the emasculation, the demoralization of law enforcement, and the emboldening of criminals who are coming out of a frankly, pathological subculture of family breakdown and the glorification of antisocial behavior. Uh, so, and, and the fact of the matter is, there's really not much the federal government can do to fight local crime, which is a, a local matter. It's based on police decisions at the ground level, uh, how to deploy, how to respond, uh, you know, what sort of tactics to use. But the feds can make things much worse. And that is what the Biden administration has done and what, what candidate Biden did when he was running for president by constantly underlining and underscoring the phony narrative that policing is, is fundamentally racist today. Well, again, the, the most shocking thing to me, and I know you've written about it extensively, Heather McDonald, was uh, that they did this entire Democratic convention. And they have some people who are lifetime police officers. They were uh, uh, Val Demings, who was a police chief. Uh, she did not have a prominent role in the convention. They didn't go through any um, effort at the Democratic convention to even condemn the rioting that was going on and causing tremendous destruction across the country. And it was as if the crime problem didn't exist because for people on the party's left, uh, they actually, they they weren't sure how they. I think they were sure how they felt about the uh, the riots that plagued so many American cities, and what they felt was they were 
basically making a strike for justice. Wasn't that the point of view? Michael, you're absolutely right there. And uh, the left views crime as a racist fiction, and it certainly thinks that the oppressed are entitled uh, to take property and, and wreak havoc on civil order as basically reparations. So your characterization of the past of Democrats is true. I just don't see a real strong commitment to turn around the narrative. You're, the Democrats are scared. Uh, this crime wave has been going on for two years now. The, the carjackings are spreading into the suburbs. The robberies are spreading into the suburbs. The mass looting is spreading into the suburbs. It's not going away. Uh, and so, yes, they're, they're trying to change course up to a point, but without, without affirmatively rejecting the narrative that the criminal justice system is racist and saying we're wrong about the cops, you know what here's what here's what biden should have done if he really wanted to induce a course correction he should have called out manhattan district attorney alvin bragg who has declared that his office will not prosecute the crime of resisting arrest that is if you're saying that you're not going to prosecute resisting arrest you are striking at the very heart of civilization because you Ordinary civilians do not have a right to resist lawful criminal uh, police power. Uh, but Biden was was silent on that. And, and Alvin Bragg represents the left-wing prosecutorial class in this country. George Gascon in Los Angeles preceded Bragg in, in declaring resisting arrest to be get-out-of-jail free card, because you're not even going to jail if you resist arrest. So... I, I'm, I'm sympathetic, Michael, to your desire to say, put a, a positive spin on this. And you're right; it's better than where we were in during the summer of the race, George Floyd race riots in 2020, and the and the their follow-ups in the in the final year. But still, I'm not going to go overboard and give Biden a whole lot of credit for meeting with with Eric Adams in New York. No, but at least it's a beginning it's of a beginning. recognition, which is necessary for him politically, because obviously this is, according to the polling now, it's the second biggest issue in the country. People are worried about it. and uh, But it, isn't it striking to you that with this latest uh, uh, unfortunate death uh, at, at the hands of police officers in Minnesota, that uh, there seems to be so much less uh, reaction than there was back in uh, May of 2020 for George Floyd, right? That's true. I mean, he did have a gun, so, <clears throat> you know, that, that complicates the unarmed black man narrative some. But, yes, it's, it is less, and we'll see what happens. Um, I, I, I don't know what that represents. Well, it, it, it seems to me it also represents that uh, there was there were guilty verdicts in the Derek Chauvin trial. There were guilty verdicts in the Ahmed Arbery murders trial, and uh, the 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 whole idea is these shouldn't be controversial issues. It, there shouldn't be anything controversial about uh, trying people and giving them a fair trial. 
I, I mean, you do believe that uh, Derek Chauvin and the McMichaels in the uh, in the Ahmed Arbery situation uh, were given fair trials, don't you? I, I think so. I mean, I think it's very hard for a jury at this point to uh, stand up to the the threat of of rioting, and I, I, I'm, they were fair, I suppose. Uh, you know, one can question some of the judgments that the trial court made in the Chauvin trial. Uh, I, I don't know if there were similarly controversial rulings in the Arbery case. Uh, I, I'm, you know, it's always a difficult question whether uh, a victim's criminal history is allowed into court, and there's good evidentiary arguments for not doing so. Uh, I, I think that the picture that was given of Arbery and what the the three defendants would have known about him or known about the narrative may not have been completely complete uh, for the jury's ears. I would also say that I I don't think the Kim Potter verdict uh, was necessarily the only one one could have reached on that evidence. But right. but our our system is is still a, a sound system, I mean, compared well, and to... And that's, that's the point, and I think that that is uh, something that is much more clear now in 2022 than it was in 2020. Heather McDonald, who is always clear, forceful, bold, and fearless, uh, and appreciate your voice always. We will be right back on The MedMed Show. Michael Medved show there is so much going on and so much controversy on so many different issues uh, that uh, it, it's hard to know where to begin or frankly where to end uh, but uh, Chris Christie was on ABC uh, over the weekend and he made a statement that I think deserves some attention because this was the first major Republican leader, and is a two-term governor of New Jersey, former federal prosecutor, and a governor of New Jersey who won that very blue state uh, by a landslide, actually won by hefty margins both times, but when he was running for re-election, he did particularly well. And uh, now, after a very disappointing presidential campaign in 2016, after working closely with the Trump administration, he was one of the directors of the Trump transition back in 2016, the beginning of 2017. He uh, made a pretty direct statement, and he frankly disagreed. Uh, I mean, emphatically, as any, it seems to me, reasonable person should, with what the Republican National Committee had to say, calling the riot in uh, the Capitol building on January 6th, calling it a legitimate political discourse, which it emphatically was not. The uh, claiming that uh, Cheney and Kinzinger needed to be <clears throat> censured 
because of their persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. That's what uh, their resolution says. Uh, Chris Christie has a different message, clip 16. The actions the vice president took on January 6th spoke loudly, and I'm glad he's finally put words to it. I don't know why it took him so long, but I'm glad that he did. Um, and let's face it, let's call this what it is. January 6th was a riot that was incited by Donald Trump uh, in an effort to intimidate Mike Pence and the Congress into doing exactly what he said in his own words last week, overturn the election. Now, he's tried to do a cleanup on aisle one here um, and correcting that stuff, but it's not going to change. He actually told the truth by accident. He wanted the election to be overturned. Donald Trump did respond um, to what the vice president said, and I think it, it's kind of akin to the kid standing in the corner holding his breath. Um, you know, it's immature, um, and it's beneath the office that he held. Okay, what is he talking about? He's talking about uh, the um, Mike Pence speech in which he says that the president wanted him to do uh, something that he had no power to do, no power at all. And, um, and Trump responded to Mike Pence's speech. We played uh, several excerpts of uh, the Pence address, which I thought was superb and a, a moment of clarity and conviction uh, by a decent man who tried, I, I believe, under difficult circumstances to do his best as Vice President of the United States. Trump responded. The um, uh, statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th President of the United States of America, many people are saying Vice President Mike Pence said I was wrong about overturning the election. He's wrong, and he has the he's wrong, wrong in all capital letters. And that's the aspect. He said, I was wrong about overturning the election, but he's wrong. Uh, he could have overturned the election, exclamation point. Of course, he said this at a Federalist Society event with no press. Oh, okay, the Federalist Society event clearly had press there. There are photographs of the event. It may not have been broadcast live. In fact, I think it actually was some places. He won't say it in public because he is weak and weak in all capital letters with an exclamation point. Okay, let's unpack this just for a moment here because it's necessary. The idea that Mike Pence said I was wrong about overturning the election, yes, Mike Pence was right about that. And please just stick with me for a moment because, yes, they are getting ready to clarify the mess that was created by all of the ambiguities in the uh, Electoral Count Act, the ECA, which was passed in 1887, but under no historical or possible interpretation does the vice president get, by the wording of the Constitution or the wording of the Electoral Count Act, any discretion whatever in either accepting or rejecting electors and slates of electors that have been put forward? And in fact, the, the only thing Mike Pence could conceivably have done would have been to... Uh, 
off. There's nothing he could have done. There's no possible legal matter. But the point is that what Trump Trump believes is that if uh, Mike Pence had insisted, then they could have uh, all gone to the Congress of the United States, which they did for both Pennsylvania and Arizona. They had full congressional votes on accepting those state uh, delegations. And in both the House and the Senate, in the Senate, the vote was 94 to 6. And in the House, it was over 2 to 1 against overturning the election. The Congress does have the power to overturn a slate of electors. But what happens then is that they don't go to Trump. Those electors then are not counted because they're under dispute. And then it goes to the House of Representatives. And under none of these scenarios, and you can even read the the moronic uh, memoranda that were being put forth by the White House, there is no way that this is even vaguely possible, that it's even vaguely legal. And the the idea that you're going to employ the army and basically martial law to impound uh, voting machines, which is part of what they're working on in the White House, this is deeply embarrassing, frankly. And uh, it's it's one of those things, and I've said this, and you've heard me say this many times, and I, I don't want to talk... If somebody, by the way, wants to explain to me how how you believe uh, Vice President Pence could have overturned the election and where there is even the slightest scrap, the slightest hangnail, the slightest scintilla of evidence that Vice President Pence had that discretion and that power, if uh, you want to make that case, I, I will listen very respectfully. And one eight hundred nine five five seventeen seventy six. Uh, Marco Rubio, another former candidate for president, maybe future candidate for president. He was a candidate, very serious one, in 2016. Didn't pan out. He was also on TV over the weekend. What did he have to say? We will get to the highlights there coming up on The Medved Show. Yes, the uh, Olympic fanfare and the Winter Olympics over in Beijing uh, appear to be <laughs> rolling out without too much fanfare or too many people watching. But one of the people who uh, shocked the world by announcing that he would be watching the Winter Games was James Homan, who is one of the most uh, distinguished and acclaimed journalists in the country. He's a national political correspondent and a columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, and he's worked for a number of other newspapers, Dallas Morning News, Los Angeles Times, San Jose Mercury News, and so forth. Uh, okay, first of all, the surprise in your most recent piece, the, uh, the apparently the winter games so far have hit all-time lows in television ratings. But you say you've been watching. Uh, why is it a good idea to watch the Olympic Games? 
Well, Michael, I, it's good to be with you, and I really struggled with it because I'm, I'm a hawk on China. Uh, I'm terrified about what China's doing to the Uyghurs, the way they're treating Hong Kong, uh, you know, the way that they're repressing Tibet and threatening Taiwan. And it, I just, it, there's, China has no business hosting the Olympics. Uh, and, you know, it's obviously kind of the joyless Olympics just because of the crazy isolation and the restrictive bubble and China's a surveillance state. So they're, they're, <laughs> I love winter sports. I love, I, I grew up in Minnesota. Ah, I that watching. explains I, it. I even like curling. You know, I, I'm, I'm one of the few people in America that's into it. Um, you you so even know what curling is. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a weird game but it it's a you know the biathlon is fun there's a lot of you know the, the, there's a lot of the winter sports that uh you know that aren't the kind of the high profile figure skating and, and uh you know downhill skiing but that actually do require quite a bit of skill and you know and, and in fact two of the um, team usa members who are competing in curling grew up just down the street from me in minnesota and you know they're they're great and so I kind of I, I ultimately came down on the side of I want to cheer on America I want to cheer on Team USA and the, the Tabitha and Tara Peterson from Minnesota shouldn't you know I, I shouldn't ignore them uh, in kind of the highlight of their lives just because of my issues with the the Chinese regime. So the governor of Minnesota is not participating in the diplomatic boycott that nine other nations uh, are imposing on the games. By the way. Does does anybody really even understand what that means, a diplomatic no. boycott? I mean, it means we we don't have the Secretary of State or the National Security Advisor uh, there in the stands. But what's the significance there? Yeah, it's a minor thing. You know, it, it's it's a it's a it's a statement of principle. Uh, it's a way to register our disapproval of China holding the games without punishing our men and women who are actually the athletes. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a relatively minor thing. There were people in the administration a year ago who were saying, well, they, you know, there, there were internal conversations about withdrawing from the Olympics. And, and ultimately, the, the feeling was it's not fair to punish the athletes the way that Jimmy Carter did uh, in 1980 after Moscow invaded Afghanistan. Well, in, in terms of had, had they attended the Olympics, your previous column is genuinely frightening and Orwellian about yeah. them attaching for people if they want to go to the games in person, they have to put an app on on, on their phones that allows the Chinese government to track their movements. What is this? Yeah, it's totally crazy. I mean, China, I mean, they're doing stuff George Orwell couldn't have dreamed of. It's really scary stuff. So in order just to enter the country, you have to download this app, and it basically gives them everything on your phone, and it includes 6,000 keywords, and it basically tips off the sensors so that, you know, if you write Xi Jinping or Winnie the Pooh, since their leader looks like <laughs> Winnie the Pooh, uh, it'll, it'll, it will alert the sensors. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's just horrible. You know, I think authoritarian isn't strong enough. I think it's fascistic and totalitarian uh, what the, the, the surveillance state in China has become, and it's not just persecuting religious minorities they're i mean they're, they're doing this to the ethnic majority han chinese as well it's just a i mean it's really taken a turn for the worse in china it's not a it's not a, a good place to to be or visit what's the future do you think because you've written a great deal about china you know a great deal about china 
do you expect that uh, it, it's even some people are speculating that they may coordinate with uh, Russia uh, in in terms of attacking other independent nations? They uh, Russia uh, preoccupies the world by striking Ukraine, and then China uses the opportunity to hit Taiwan. Do you think that speculation has any substance? I do, Michael. Sadly, and they put out the the Chinese and Russians issued this weird joint communique over the weekend about their limitless about friendship. There are no limits to their friendship, right? Isn't that what they yeah. said? Yep, exactly. And it's 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 chilling. You know, Henry Kissinger living long enough to see his worst nightmare realized. Uh, and you know, the idea of opening up China in the '60s uh, was so that this wouldn't happen. Uh, you know, to try to drive a wedge between these two countries. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that a lot of people I'm talking to here in Washington don't expect Putin to move against Ukraine until after the Olympics is because he doesn't want to upset Xi, uh, you know, that, that may be wishful thinking, who knows. Uh, but it is it is worrisome. And I do think that China certainly uh, wants to keep us preoccupied with Eastern Europe and continue to saber rattle against Taiwan and you know the certainly the failure of Afghanistan uh, last summer kind of sent the message to authoritarians everywhere that you know, the, the United States isn't as strong as we'd like to think and what do we do I mean I I, I know that they're now estimating that there could be over a million uh, immediate refugees Ukrainians yeah. who flee the country if if Russia invades, as many people expect, uh, there would be huge financial impulses. Wouldn't wouldn't this be, if nothing else, a devastating blow against the American economy? Yeah, it could be. And, uh, you know, in, in, uh, hopefully Putin backs down. Uh, and But there is a scenario where this is just, it, it really is messy and there's a lot of refugees, Kiev, the capital, you know, getting uh, kind of under siege by Moscow. Uh, it's easy to forget because Russia is so big, but Ukraine, the country of Ukraine, is actually the size of Texas. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's not a small, insignificant country, and the you know a quarter of Ukrainians own rifles or guns, and uh, you know, I, I I don't think that. Russia will be able to just sort of march in as quickly as some in the administration seem to fear. Uh, you know, the, they were saying at a briefing over the weekend that it could be Ukraine could fall in 72 hours. And I think that we'll see some resistance. But there, I mean, Putin now has closer to 200,000 troops than 100,000 troops massed. And basically, he has five different invasion routes and options to go into the country. It's, it's a very scary moment. Uh, what should know, the message? What should the in just the moments we have left? What should the message yeah. be from the United States and our leaders? I think we need to uh, say that this isn't going to be acceptable, and that Russia will pay a price, and that uh, if we don't, that there we'll see China move against Taiwan, and we'll see other you know Iran move against uh, our allies. It, but at the same time, it's just not tenable for us to have World War III over this. And we, I think we have to be realistic about setting those expectations, uh, but we also need to make it clear that we're not just going to put out angry press releases, but there will be firm consequences. 
I'm so pleased you could join us. James Homan of The Washington Post. His most recent columns are posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. Coming up uh, next, the great debate. Who was right, Mike Pence or Donald J. Trump? That and more on The Medved Show. Entertain your brain. It's awesome. Every day on The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show I'm talking about the uh, great debate um, the great debate not <laughs> so great in terms of um, indelible eloquence at least uh, not uh, in the exchange between Mike Pence and Donald Trump I think that Mike Pence gave an extraordinary speech when you listen to the whole speech and we'll listen to a bunch of it in a moment uh, it's a, clearly a quality speech. When I talk about their exchange, it's basically Mike Pence's most famous line was saying President Trump was wrong. That, by the way, people have said, well, why didn't he say that kind of thing when Trump was president? And the answer is because that's against the job description. Our vice presidents are not ideally supposed to argue with presidents in public. Uh, they can be behind-the-scenes advisors, but uh, the way that our political system has evolved, this is not in the Constitution, by the way, but the way that the system has evolved is going all the way back to the very early 1800s. Uh, the vice presidential candidates have been largely selected or at least approved by the presidential Candidates and and today in in modern America it's entirely a choice. It's uh, uh, the president has the ability to select his vice presidential nominee. The last time that didn't happen, where a presidential nominee actually turned it over to the convention and said, "You choose the vice president, I won't." And it was Adlai Stevenson in 1956, where um, basically. There were two candidates for vice president who both were attracting attention, John Kennedy, the senator from Massachusetts, and Estes Kefauver, the, um, the senator from Tennessee. And, uh, and, and it ended up that the convention chose by a narrow margin uh, Senator Kefauver, and the next election, uh, Senator Kennedy won the nomination. So it, it worked out that he caught a break not being selected for a losing ticket. But uh, Pence was not selected for a losing ticket. He and Trump won the election. Uh, there was not serious dispute about the outcome of the election, even though it was considerably closer uh, by every measure. Popular vote, uh, the votes in crucial swing states, electoral vote, everything. It was actually the identical elec electoral vote in reverse as the uh, uh, Trump versus Biden, uh, Trump versus Clinton, the same, just flipped. In any event, uh, what Pence said in his speech and the Trump 
uh, tried to to answer just by reaffirming the idea that he believes the vice president could overturn the election, which is preposterous. Uh, here is what uh, Mike Pence said at his speech at the Federalist Society, which, by the way, is the conservative voice at American law schools. The Federalist Society, I've spoken for five or six Federalist Society chapters in various law schools across the country and felt very honored to do so as Pence was doing here in Florida. And here is what he said right after he declared that Trump was wrong about overturning the election. Listen. Under the Constitution, I had no right to change the outcome of our election. And Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. Look, I understand the disappointment many feel about the last election. I was on the ballot. <laughs> but whatever the future holds, I know we did our duty that day. John Quincy Adams reminds us. Uh, and duty is ours. Results are God's. And the truth is there's more at stake than our party or political fortunes. Men and women, if we lose faith in the Constitution, we won't just lose elections. We'll lose our country. That being said, I believe the time has come to focus on the future. And I know we will. With assaults on our freedom, runaway inflation, crime wave in our withdrawal from Afghanistan that emboldened our adversaries around the world. I know that freedom-loving Americans will continue to come together and move forward in defense of all we hold dear. And I promise you, we will stay in the fight. And I will not allow the Democrats or their allies in the media to use the actions of those who ransacked the Capitol to demean the aspirations of 74 million Americans who cherish our values and cause. I've done the Liberty Bell. Our words from Leviticus. It reads, proclaim liberty throughout all the land and unto all the inhabitants thereof. So men and women of the Federalist Society, let's keep proclaiming liberty on the foundation poured in the Constitution of the United States and defended by every generation since. Let's raise the banner of freedom high and let's be confident that the American people will rally to our cause. Let's keep the faith. Let's keep faith with the ideals of our founders enshrined in the Declaration and that Constitution. Let's keep faith with those millions of Americans who know in their heart that the sun has not set on the land of the free. And most of all, let's keep faith with him who has ever guided this great experiment in freedom as we do our duty 
to God and country. I know the best days in this one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all are yet to come. Thank you. Thank and you uh, that was the way that Mike Pence concluded uh, his speech. What's most striking here, and I didn't interrupt the speech, is when he says, uh, no, I didn't have the right to overturn the election, and neither will Kamala Harris, who is the vice president. Uh, will she have the right to overturn the election when uh, we beat them in 2024? Now, a lot of people have been scratching heads about that. I, I, I do not believe, and, and Trump has even been asked about this, he... Uh, has not suggested, no, I would never consider Mike Pence to be my running mate again, but he's implied it. I mean, and, and obviously when you have this level of disagreement, uh, and, and President Trump criticized Mike Pence before the rioters went up to the Capitol building when he's giving a speech at the Ellipse to thousands of people. He uh, told, uh, said that Mike Pence was spending too much time speaking to rhinos, and he apparently lacked the courage, and he lacked... What he lacked was the authority or any ability to do it. And uh, the, the one thing about President Trump and about the prospect of him running again, which I so much hope and pray he does not, would be horrible for him. It would be worse for the country. And, uh, and and worse for the country because, for God's sake, at some point or another, they will get to the bottom of some of the questions that have yet to be answered about January 6th. And I don't believe it's enough to say that, uh, well, it was uh, just a legitimate political discourse. It was not. There were cops who were injured. Generally, Republicans would care about injured cops. And why don't we this time? And we should. And an investigation is entirely appropriate. Is the setup of the investigation or who is on it ideal? No, probably not. But are they doing a decent and honest job so far? I believe they are. And the 730 people have already been indicted or charged. The 160 now, I think it is, who have pleaded guilty and uh, cooperated with the further investigation it's an investigation that needs to go on. Uh, we also are going to need, at some point, a deeper understanding of what really went wrong with COVID in the United States. No one would have predicted that a million people would die here, and no one would have predicted that America would be the highest, uh, even proportionally, the highest death toll in the world. Why should America be anything less than this greatest nation on God's green earth? We will pursue that conversation coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.